today we're going to come to uh, our final look at the book of Lamentations today. And so if you want to start preparing yourself, you can turn there in the Word of God to Lamentations chapter 4. We're going to look at 4 and 5 today. Uh, next Sunday, I'm going to do kind of a standalone message. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and so we're going to do a, a, a special message just looking at thankfulness and thanksgiving as uh, the people of God. And then the following week, we'll uh, jump right into an Advent series that will lead us into the, into the new year. But we're going to be in Lamentations uh, today, and to, to kind of get our minds around our, our uh, scripture this morning, uh, my dad and his family grew up going to this lake in northern Wisconsin every summer. My grandfather, when he was in the military, he had served as an engineer in the Marines in the Pacific Front, and um, he used some of the money that he got to buy this parcel of land in the middle of nowhere for dirt cheap on a lake, and so he bought a cabin out of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Yes, you heard that correctly. He bought the cabin out of a catalog, all right, and they put it together there, and uh, so they would go up there, this tiny little cabin, and my grandfather, I, uh, I loved him. Uh, he was a unique man, uh, just a different kind of guy as far as uh, the things that he would think to do. And one year, there was this tree that was kind of in the middle of what would be the driveway to their cabin. It was just a gravel uh, road. And I believe the story goes something like this. The tree had gotten old and had fallen down. And so all that remained was a stump in the middle of the driveway. And so they decided one summer to remove the stump from the driveway. And this was a big tree, so this was a big stump. And so my dad and his brothers worked alongside my grandfather to dig this stump out, eventually getting to the place where they um, put some chains on the stump and then hooked that, I think, to the back of their car at the time and, and finally was able to pull the stump out, filled it back in. And so my grandfather had, thanks so much, Scott, my grandfather then had uh, his driveway that he had longed to to have without a stump right in the middle. And so everything was great that summer. The next year, they came back, and they arrived at the cabin at nighttime. And they pulled up to uh, the cabin. They unloaded all of their stuff. They got out. They went to bed. When they came out the next morning, they discovered that the car they had driven in was now, well, at least half of it below the ground. Do you know what had happened? A sinkhole had been created. As they had pulled the stump out, that stump obviously had roots and had been holding the ground together in different ways. And without those roots there in place, over the winter as the ground froze and then thawed, the holes got filled in with nothing. And so when the car came and it parked right where the sink or where the stump used to be, the car sunk into the ground. Now, do you know what they were thinking the next morning? My grandfather wasn't a Christian, so he said certain things. But... Um, <clears throat> But it's like, what do we do now? There's just a car in a hole. Our only car, we're in the middle of nowhere. What, what are we going to ultimately do? They had performed an action the summer before, and they had not fully thought about what the consequences of their actions would be. But their actions had brought them to this place. They now had a sinkhole in the middle of their driveway. Their car was literally in a hole. Have you ever had a situation like that in your life? Not a car going into a sinkhole, but you did something. You engaged in something, and it had some maybe unintended consequences, things that you weren't anticipating. And then when you look at what those consequences are, they were so devastating and so big that you just look at it like you would look at a car in a hole in the ground with your family saying, well, now what do we do? 
Can we get the car out? Can, can this ever be fixed? Maybe it wasn't a, a car for you. Maybe it was a relationship for you. Something that you did, something that you said, and, and it led to such a fight, such a fracture in the relationship that you think to yourself, can this thing ever be repaired? On a deeper level, on a vastly more spiritual level, what we're going to consider today, has you, have you ever had a situation where you performed an action or you did something or said something that you knew to be sin? And the grievous nature of that sin led you to a place where you thought, I know I've gone against what God wants me to do here. How does he think of me now? Can he actually love me? Can, can we actually have relationship again? I have done something so grievous, it's spiritually like a car in a sinkhole, and I was the one that created it. Well, as we come to Lamentations chapter 4 today, church, this is the situation that we find the people of God in. They had created a situation where they had rebelled against God. It had brought ruin upon them because God said, if you disobeyed, this is what's going to happen. And as you come to Lamentations chapter 4, we're going to be relooking again at this ruin that they were experiencing. And they're wrestling with the question, can it ever be repaired? Our city is in ruins. Our city is in, tattered, is in tatters. We feel separated from God. Can we be healed? Can we be restored? Is there a way back? And that is ultimately the question that is going to be addressed in Lamentations 4 and Lamentations chapter 5. Now, we're going to read Lamentations chapter 4 and 5 in their entirety at different moments in this sermon. We're going to do chapter 4 right now, but here's what I need to say as we turn to chapter 4. As I read chapter 4, if you were with us when we started our study, you're going to say, this sounds eerily familiar. It sounds like the author is just saying the things that he said in Lamentations 1 and 2. And you would be absolutely correct in thinking that. Because Lamentations is a book of poetry, of Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry typically has parallelism and repetition in it. And so really, chapter 4 is intended to be a mirror and an expansion of what we heard in chapter 1 and 2. And so as we read this, we're going to be refreshing our minds with some of the things we've already covered, because we're ultimately building to that question. Is there a way back? Is it possible to be restored? When you and I come to a season of our life in our relationship with God, and we say, well, now what? We are experiencing such devastation. We've, we've lived the consequences of our sins. Where do we go from here? Well, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Here we go. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots. The work of potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostrich in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been great, greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were made ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. 
Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits of the field. The hands of a compassionate woman have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that the foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean! People cried at them. Away! Away! Do not touch! So they became fugitives and wandered. People said among the nations, They shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching, vainly for help. In our watching, we wanted, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? It's the word of the Lord, and it is a heavy, heavy word, is it not? And like I said earlier, for those of you who were with us when we looked at chapters 1 and 2, much of this ruin and devastation that's recorded here should have sounded familiar. Like I said, the author is writing Hebrew poetry, so he's retelling what we saw in verses 1 and 2 for the purpose of emphasis. In fact, if you were eagle-eyed, you might even have noticed that verse 1 of chapter 4 sounds eerily similar to verse 1 of chapter 1. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, "...how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed." The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. Notice both of these verses communicate a great reversal of fortune that Israel experienced, but it uses different images. Both of them start with a how, how the gold has grown dim, how a lonely city was full. In one verse, you have the decrease of value of items in the city. Of the other one, you see a decrease of capacity of the city. Both of these verses are intended to communicate a similar thing. The fortunes of Israel had changed drastically. The author wants us to see 
and to learn from what Israel had experienced. We talked about how in Romans chapter 15, it says that what was written in former days was written for our instruction. And so church, this chapter, just as chapters 1 and 2 did, are intended to emphasize for us a couple of key truths. And the first one is this. Rebelling against God is a grievous thing. Rebelling against God is a grievous thing. To go against God, to go against his word is grievous. The imagery that's used to show us what happens to Israel and its people is truly painful to read and makes us at times even uncomfortable. Mothers boiling their children for food. Infants having their tongues stick to their roof. People sitting in ash heaps, skin being dried like bones. All of that came because the people of God had rebelled against God. Verse 13 says, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. All the pain and all the suffering of Israel was due to her sin against God. If we think for one moment that sin, that is disobedience against a holy God, is not a grievous thing, this passage is intended to wake us up and to be able to say, it is. A holy God, when he is rebelled against, what we're looking at here are the consequences of that rebellion. In fact, that leads us to the next point. This text is trying to show us that when you rebel against God and his ways, there are consequences. There are consequences. God, from the first pages of his holy word, had said that. First to Adam and Eve, did he not? He said, you are my people, you are my image bearers, you are to walk in my ways. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because the day in which you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Surely die. The moment you substitute my word for what you believe to be right and true, there is consequence. In fact, even this passage right here, the fact that the people of God experienced exile and the devastation of their city, God had told them long before, in Leviticus 26, you can write that down and look at it, Deuteronomy 28, Numbers 32, 23, just as God had told Adam and Eve, you are my people, here is the garden, here is the goodness of the world that I have created, walk in my ways. So too, after God took Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery, redeemed them and brought them to be his people, just as he delivers us from the domain of darkness through his son Jesus Christ. Think about this. He takes Israel out of Egypt. He puts them in the promised land, and he says to them in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, if you walk in my ways, just as he did with Adam and Eve, if you walk in my ways, this promised land which I've given you, it will go well with you, but if you reject me, you will go into exile your cities will be conquered. Your people will be carried off. God has always been clear that when you rebel against him, you're giving up life, you're giving up goodness, and you're accepting consequence. In my office, I have this test. It lets me know who, can, who has self-control and who doesn't when they walk into my office. 
I used it as an illustration one time. I should have brought it out this morning. It's called Newton's Cradle. Do you guys know what Newton's Cradle is? Newton's Cradle is that thing that has a bunch of steel balls connected to it, and they all hang down. And if you lift up one ball and you swing it back and it hits the other balls, what happens to the ball on the far end? Boop, it goes off. You've seen this, right? Newton's Cradle. I have it in my office, and whoever touches it, I know that these people don't have self-control because they come in, they're like, tick, 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 you know, that's kind of thing. But Newton's Cradle shows cause and effect, Right? Every time you lift up one ball and it swings back down, gravity causes it to hit it, and the inertia forces the ball at the very end of the chain to pop back out. Church, we know that to be true through observation. God's word comes and says, do not expect different results when you rebel against my word. It has consequences. And here's the tragic thing about these consequences. You cannot predict And I cannot predict the severity of the consequences of disobedience. And you cannot control them. You cannot predict the severity of the consequences for disobedience. And you cannot control them. In Leviticus Leviticus 26, God does come and he says, this is what will happen if you rebel against my word. Your people will be carried off. You'll be given over to others. But you know what Leviticus 26 doesn't say? It doesn't say what we read here in chapter 4, verse 10, that the hands of a compassionate woman will have boiled their own children and become food for them. Leviticus 26 doesn't predict that not only would the people of God be carried off into exile, but that as a consequence of their sin, because of their rebellion, the starvation will be so severe that normally compassionate people will kill and eat their own children to survive. That, to me, church, is a powerful picture of that sin and its consequences are always far more devastating than we could ever imagine. And we can't control it. See, we will do things, we'll rebel against God, and in the moment, we might not see the consequence of it. In fact, one of the mercies of God is that the full wrath of God isn't revealed against the sinner the moment that they're even born. We know the greatest consequence is that the wages of sin is death, but between now and the time of our death, the pain and suffering that sin invites into your life is something that you cannot control. So many times we'll do something. I always see this when, especially in relationships with other human beings, sometimes you'll have somebody that sins against another person. They hurt them. They, They might even abuse them. And the person who's always the victimizer and not the victim will always come and they'll seek forgiveness from that other person. And they'll never understand. I've never known the victimizer to ever be like, oh, I completely understand what I did to you. And I'm content with all of the consequences that you bring against me. They might say that, but nobody ever fully is. Because you never know how deeply your sin impacts or harms somebody else. This text is a text that shows us that you can't control the consequences or the severity of sin. It's just that grievous. But then there's one other thing that stood out to me from this text. And that's this truth. And you have to understand the context to get this. And that is obedience to God can be hard. Obedience to God to walk in his ways can be hard, but disobedience leads to destruction. Let me me tease this out for you. 
I don't want to come to you this morning and think that as we read this, all right, I see that sin is grievous. I see it has these consequences. It led the people of God to ruin here. But I don't want you to think that just simply if you choose to follow God, that that will always be easy. Tell me, is following God always easy? Have you found that in your life? Let me paint for you the picture of what the people of God faced before what happened in Lamentations. The people of God had already started to rebel, and so the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two. We talked about this. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And already, because they had been divided, there was a weakness that the nation faced. Being divided, they were weaker. And all around them, the nations began to see that weakness had developed. And eventually, the northern kingdom got carried off first. And so you got poor little old Judah in the south, which is, to, which is where all of this takes place in Lamentations. And Judah in the south is still the people of God. God has still made his promise to them. His promise that if you walk in my ways, if you turn from your sin, if you turn to me, if you cut down the poles where you're worshiping false gods, if you come to me, I will protect you. I will watch over you. But that's what God said. Do you know what they were feeling, though, at that time? Here they were, little old Judah. And you had Egypt to the south with its dynasties and its armies. And you had Babylon rising in power. And God said, I will be your God. I will protect you. You don't need to make alliances with other kingdoms. But in the ancient world, if you were a weak little kingdom, what did you do, church? You made alliances. That was the wise thing to do. You made alliances. Everybody else around them was making alliances, capitulating and compromising, giving themselves over to these other nations so that they wouldn't be completely destroyed. The context for God's people was that they were living in a time and place where God's word said, I will take care of you. And yet everything in and around them was saying, you need more. You need the alliances. You got to side with Egypt or you better side with Babylon because they're going to come in with their armies and crush you. And so do you know why I say that obedience to God can be hard? Is because if Israel, Judah now at that time, if they were to walk in God's ways, they would be going against all the common wisdom of that day. To reject offers from Egypt or to reject offers from Babylon for help and protection would have seemed to the world to be absolutely foolish. Yet sometimes, church, isn't that what God calls us to do? Doesn't obedience to God sometimes look like foolishness to the world? To walk in his ways can at times appear foolish. And yet, over and over, a chapter like this comes and says, listen, obedience can be hard, but disobedience to God it always leads to destruction. And we're tempted to it, church. We're tempted to disobey and not call it disobedience, although it's directly that. Because to obey him, to walk as young people in 
God's purity and design for, for marriage and a sexual ethic can look to the world as absolute foolishness. And so we will compromise our times, obedience to God in the area of sexual purity. Why? Because how can we ever find a spouse? Nobody else is like this. We do it as adults. We decide to give to God after we take care of all of, of our stuff. We tip God rather than worship Him with what we have. We spend more time at work than with our families, failing to lead our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord because we believe that they need more, they need financial security above the presence of a father or a mother that will teach them the ways of God. We lie to a boss or to a client because if they knew the truth, we might lose that account. We drink and claim that we're not getting drunk, but we're drinking to the point where we're numbing our pain. All of these things are us failing to do the hard thing, walk in obedience to God, when every single one of these things can ultimately lead towards destruction. These are hard truths. As a preacher, it's not the most fun thing to come up here. In fact, in today's culture, what most people want is they want to be just simply built up and lifted up and not hear what we already know is true, which is these things. But we need to hear this because it's in God's word, and it's in God's word because he wants us as his people to remind ourselves of the severity of sin. But fortunately for us, there's one more thing that's an expansion, something that we have not yet heard that comes at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 22. Notice in verse 22, the author makes this statement. We've heard these other truths before throughout the book, but now he comes and he says something new. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile, what? No longer. For the first time, we discover in Lamentations that while all these things are true and they brought the ruin upon themselves because of their sin, now the author comes and says, but here's the hopeful thing. God's punishment is accomplished. The, the severity of your judgment has reached its tipping point. You won't remain in exile any longer and so here for the first time we hear this, that God's judgment against his people was completed. God's judgment against his people was completed. While they could never have predicted the magnitude of the consequences of their sin, the author of Lamentations is coming and saying, but here's what I do want you to know. You shouldn't expect any more. God has laid upon you all that he is going to lay upon you. Now, in one sense, that would be such good news. They did not have to anticipate further suffering. But that still leaves us with a pretty big question. The question that I started the message with, the question of now what? Great, the car's in the sinkhole. Our city is in ruins. We feel separated from God. And you're saying that's the worst of it. But where do we go from here? Because I don't know if you notice, author of Lamentations, but the city is in ruins. God still feels far off. Where do we go from here? And that's where Lamentations chapter 5 
comes in and it answers this question. It shows us now, church, what I call the way to restoration. And it begins in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance is turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as in an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and the boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men have the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have what? Sinned. For this is our heart, for this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew us as of days of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. What we have here is a chapter that in many ways at first seems like he's just once again retelling everything that we saw in 1 and 2 and chapter 4. But in reality, what we have here in chapter 5 is something unique and something different. What we have here is the way of restoration. It's the prayer of repentance. That is what ultimately the author is showing us here. You want to know the way back. You want to know how you get out of the sinkhole. You want to experience the restoration. Is that restoration even possible? The author is showing us, yes, it is. But it involves repentance. It's a prayer that he prays. Even his retelling of all their devastation serves a place in his repentance and even in ours. And so I get to come to you with this great hope today to say that no matter how tragic no matter how severe the consequences for your sin or my sin might be, God, by his grace and mercy, has provided repentance as a way for you and I to experience the restoration that he and he alone gives. And it involves a couple of things that the text shows us. First and foremost, before we get to that, let me just say really clear, to repent is to turn. To repent is to turn or to return. And so when you think about repentance biblically, it's this it's a turning from and a turning to. And so what the author shows us is that the first step to re- re- restoration, the way that we engage in repentance is that you must come to God. You must come to God. Notice what verse 1 says. There's no running from God. 
The author knows that the consequences have been severe and they all came from the hand of God. But rather than running from God, the author comes back to God. Look at verse 1. Remember, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Does that sound like someone who can't stand God? Someone who's bitter at God. Someone who wants to avoid God. No, he's actually inviting God to come and to to look upon his disgrace. To look upon the consequences, as he points out, of their sin. If you want to experience the way back to restoration with God, no sin is so great that you can't come to God. This is what he is saying We turned against you. We rebelled against you, but he's saying, remember us. He's calling out to him in prayer. The nature of man, as we saw in Adam and Eve in the garden, is to hide from or to avoid those we have sinned against. The author of Lamentations is telling us, do not do that. Do not do that. We need to come to God. Only God, church, can give you what you need when you have sinned. And so if you never come to him, you will never get what you're looking for. You will never experience his forgiveness. You will never experience his mercy and his grace if when confronted with your sin and all its consequences, you do not come to him. Growing up, I loved baseball and certain baseball players. And one year, as a young child, my dad brought me and my brother to spring training. And there on the ball field, back in those days, the players were just so close to you. And there were some players on the team that I so desperately wanted to get their autographs. I wanted to to have that baseball with their name and, and display it in my room. And there was this one moment where we were walking along this field at spring training and the player had come off the field and just started walking right past us. And it's the player I so desperately wanted their autograph. But in finally seeing them, being so close that I could touch them, what do you think I felt as a little kid? I was scared. I, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't, I can't go. And I will always remember my dad looking at me and, and just kind of having that moment of like, This is what you wanted. You wanted this thing. And the only way that you're going to get it is, you know, he does, Mark Grace, that's the baseball player at the time, if you didn't remember him, is walking by. He's like, he doesn't know that that you want his autograph. You must what? You must ask him. You must go to him. And I did. I got the autograph. But that, that is in our mind. It's like, you want restoration with God? You must come to him. And then it says in this text, as we see that we need to acknowledge and own our sin. When he says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us, look and see our disgrace. What's he doing here? He's not asking God to look at the disgrace so that the author can say, see, see God our disgrace, you were the one that caused it. Look at what you did to us, God. Is that why he invites him to look at their disgrace? No, 
Because twice he says, first in verse 7 and then in verse 18, after those long passages where he describes all the horrendous things that happened to Israel, twice he says, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Oh, so it's your dad's fault. No, verse 16, the crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us for what? We have sinned. He is acknowledging and owning his sin before God. He is saying the reason why we experience these consequences, the reason why there's a break in our relationship has nothing to do with you, oh God. It has everything to do with us. He's showing us, you want the way back? You want to know that restoration? God's there. God is gracious. God is forgiving. Come to him. Own and acknowledge your sin before him. True repentance is calling out your sin and owning it. It's saying, I am the guilty party. I caused the problem in our relationship. But repentance is not simply coming to God, acknowledging and owning your sin against him. Repentance does not end here. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Church, what's happening here? What's being modeled for us? The author is asking God to restore. What Israel has damaged, the author is asking that God would fix and make right. What he's doing here is he's coming now and he's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for forgiveness from God. The author knew that the judgment of God had come to an end, but that is not what he is asking of God. He's asking God to be restored to him. It's not enough for the author to know that God's judgment has reached its climax. He says, I just don't want the judgment to end. I want to come back to you. It's what we read in Psalm 51 this morning when David calls out. He's like, I want to know you again. I want to be restored to you. And so I'm asking you, God, to do what only you can do. I have sinned. I have done wrong. I've experienced the judgment from it. But you must restore. And in order for him to restore, he must forgive. He must remember their sins no more. To bring them back to that place, God must take that debt of their sin upon himself and not hold it against them anymore. To welcome them back, God, God must be the one who comes and forgives. To forgive is to say, I will no longer make you pay for what you have done. Church, as I read Lamentations chapters 4 and 5, I see two chapters in the Word of God that's showing us so clearly the devastation that sin brings upon an individual and a people, but it's also showing us the way forward to restoration. It's showing us that God indeed does desire to bring about restoration with those who have sinned against Him. But you do not find that, though, in chapter 5 in its totality. Because chapter 5 ends hopelessly. Did you guys notice that as I was reading it? Lamentations chapter 5 ends this way. Look at it. See, you have to ask the question. We ask for forgiveness. We own our sin. We come to God. But will God forgive those who repent? Here's the answer that verses 21 and 22 give. 
He says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Verse 22 says, unless, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And that's how the book ends. Wow. Did you know that that's how Lamentation ends? That it ends with the author supposedly not knowing whether or not all that they did would lead to a restored relationship with God. Now, some of you should be looking at me and saying, Dave, you just spent the last 35 minutes telling me that there's a way to restoration with God, and then the book ends like this, with unknown whether or not you do those things, whether or not you'll be restored to relationship with God. The book ends hopelessly. The book ends as though we don't know the answer. Ah, but church, here is where some education is important. <laughs> education is important. See, I said that Lamentations is a book of Hebrew poetry. It uses repetition, it uses parallelism. And the author of Lamentations has already assumed that you know that you already read the answer to the question, will God forgive those who repent? Do you know that? See, he already assumes that you already know the answer because he already gave you the answer to that question. Because the climax of Lamentations is not the end of the book. That's not how Hebrew poetry always works. The climax to the book of Lamentations is found smack dab in the middle of the book in the passage that we already read. Will God forgive those who repent? The answer is right here in chapter 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are what? New every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is the center point of the book of Lamentations. How can the sinner know that they will be forgiven? You see, when it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that is a very specific word tied to the covenantal love of God. The author is saying because of the promises of God, the promises of God built around his covenant with his people, he will forgive. So you want to know the answer to the question, will God forgive those who repent? The answer that the author of Lamentations gives in Lamentations chapter 3 is yes, because of his promises to his people. In the Old Testament, he promised that if they turned, he would forgive, and it was based upon his love for his people. Today, as a church, how can we trust that when we sin, that we can know that God still loves and forgives us? The answer is because of the covenant promise of God in Jesus Christ. That's the great promise. If we confess our sins, 1 John chapter 1 says, he is what? Faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you find yourself in a sinkhole of sin of your own doing, and you say, now what? Now what do I do? The answer is, repent. Come to God through the way of restoration. Come to him. Acknowledge and own your sin. Ask for forgiveness from him and know that not because of your work, but because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ done for you on the cross, your sins will too be forgiven and you will know the restoration of your relationship with God. 
Church, some of you might say, Dave, this is like Christianity 101. I say, great, good. Do you know how many times in the Bible we have stories of the people of God sinning and needing to repent, including in the New Testament? They're innumerable. How many times have you heard me say that if God's word repeats something over and over and over again, it's not because he enjoys hearing himself talk, although he does because he's God and he's perfect. It's because we need to hear it. And some of you in this room today, some of you are in a sinkhole of your own making and you're feeling weighed down by your sin and God is saying, why haven't you taken the way to restoration with me? Some of you are in a sinkhole in relationship with other people and God is saying, you know, we forgive as the Lord what? Forgave us. And so I don't know where you're at today. Some of you are like, I'm good. Me and God, we're tight. Well, we're homeboys. We're doing this thing together. There's going to come a time when you may not feel that way. And what are you going to do? What are you going to lean on? God says, this is what you lean on. This is the way to your restoration. Through repentance, which leads you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we recognize at least as we should recognize, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that there's not one person here today who's been made a new creation apart from having repented once already, having already come to you and experienced the way of restoration through Jesus Christ. But Lord, we come to this text and pray, Lord, that this would be a reminder to us that this isn't a path and this isn't a journey that we take just one time. But over and over again, Lord, we see the glory of who you are and the richness of your grace and your mercy by taking this path of repentance, by calling upon you when we feel the, the weight and the greatness of our sin and its consequences. Lord, help us never to doubt your love or your mercy because it is always found in your forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room here today who didn't know any of this, Lord, who only knows the sinkhole of sin in their life, who has not yet called upon Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord. I pray that today they would know the forgiveness that is found in him and the way of restoration through Christ and Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen.